0: I just want to say uh, probably um, thank you for just a few of our teams, our worship team, who's um, just working tirelessly every week. What you see on Sundays is not just something where they show up and um, um, kind of just rely on their talents to play a few songs for you. Um, they actually pray about and think about and, and, and practice and discuss um, and look at what God's will is for this church and for what he's doing around uh, in, this, in the life of this church um, and so what you see on the, uh, on, on the outside of that, the overflow of that, is a Sunday morning where they, they are leading us in worship, and also our, our kids' church, our, our team who's uh, working there every, every week. Um, I was told that as, uh, as preachers and pastors, we should all volunteer for kids' church. That way we know how it feels whenever we go 45 minutes to an hour um, for, for, a, for a kids' church worker, and so I think that's probably some good advice, but I'm not taking it, um, but uh, but just, I mean, really just super grateful for, for everyone who's just spending time there, um, not just playing with our kids, but actually pointing them to Jesus, talking about the gospel, and showing them how much God loves them, um, and just very formative time in the, in the life of, of, of our kids that we want to be able to have an opportunity to do that. Um, so just really appreciate those. Um, we are going to continue just jumping right back into the book of Acts. We are walking through uh, the entire book, the entire narrative of this story, um, Last week, uh, Joey opened up chapter 16 for us, um, and that's where we're going we're gonna to pick back up there. And I'm actually going to do a little bit of overlapping. I'm going to pick up some ideas from, from the passage from last week as we kind of walk through the rest of this chapter today. Um, maybe just to give you a little bit of a timeline in history, uh, where we're at today in Scripture, uh, we're roughly 20 years, 20 to 25 years after Jesus has been crucified uh, b- uh, buried in the ground, uh, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. We're roughly 20 to 25 years um, since that, that event, that moment happened in our story today. Um, and, 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 and Paul and Silas, they've arrived in, in Philippi. And I just want to say, like, as they arrive in Philippi, and as we look at the, the timeline, where they are uh, in history, um, by 325, okay, so we're in about 50 to, uh, 50 to 55 AD in this time, and by about 3, 25 A.D., um, historians and scholars would tell us that over half of the Roman Empire will have become Christian by this time. Um, So that's how fierce the gospel is spreading and moving through this the the, the known world at at that time. Um, And 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 what's interesting, one of the things I want reasons I want to point that out is that it all started with twelve guys. 11-ish, 12, they added a 12th after Judas. But it all started with these, this handful of guys who were on a hillside who had no influence. They had no power, they had no money, they'd given up their jobs to follow this guy who's now been crucified and has and now ascended into heaven. These guys start with nothing, right? And, and, and that's, that's this movement now that 325 plus years later has taken over the, nearly the entire Roman Empire, with, with these few guys, and, and I, you know, just thinking about that, what was it? You know, like what was it if they didn't have influence, if they didn't know people, if they didn't have money, if they didn't have an established uh, uh, um, reputation in the community? How in the world did this happen? And there's really only two things that I know that they had about them that was able to make this work. They had a conviction. They had a conviction that Jesus Christ... Had, had truly risen from the dead, that, that truly was resurrected, and the other thing they had was the Holy Spirit. They had the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what they went, that's what they went with. That's, the, that's what they left with, a passion and a conviction about who Jesus was and what he said he, who He said He was, and, and the truth about that, and then the empowering Spirit of God. They have nothing more than what this church has. They have nothing more than what the church has around the corner has. Yet they flipped the world upside down with this message. So how did the movement of Jesus gain so much traction? Like That's the big question then. Okay, then how did they do it, right? They got this passion, they got this conviction, but practically, Blake, what did they do? How did they, how did they do this? And I think the key was that every person Every person who named the name of Jesus, not just a handful of specialized apostles or ordained ministers or sent missionaries, but every person carried the message. Every person who said, I follow Jesus, carried this message. And they carried it with the same conviction and they carried it with the same power. And Luke as he's writing this, this historical narrative of Acts, as he's writing this, it seems like he would go out of his way time and time again to show us that, that these are ordinary people, and they're the ones that are primarily spreading the gospel. Right? The, 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 the head of the church, basically, they kind of hung out in Jerusalem and stayed there right? for the most part. Eventually, some would trickle out into the far reaches of the earth. But primarily, these were everyday, normal people who were going and spreading the message of the gospel. And I don't know if you remember, when we were at Acts chapter 11, when we hit there a few, few weeks ago, a church planning movement started with guys who did, we didn't even get their names. They were unknown. They just said, some guys went to Antioch. And that's where this church planning movement started, where Paul and Silas and Luke and others are going to go to the far reaches of the earth with the message of the gospel. Unnamed people, normal, everyday people Except they have a conviction about who Jesus is, and they have a passion and a power that's given through the Holy Spirit. And so what does evangelism? And when I say evangelism, what I'm talking about is the telling of good news. That's simply what that means. So you can be an evangelist of any kind, not necessarily one of Jesus, not one of the gospel. You can be an evangelist of any kind. But but when I say evangelist in Scripture in biblical terms, I'm talking about one who tells the good news of Jesus, that he has resurrected from the dead and that he is seated on his throne. What, what, What does evangelism by everyday people look like? What does telling people about Jesus in the everyday, in the normal, mundane, routine Point in, points in your life. What does that, that look like? Last week, I think we saw the first example of what we're going to see. We're going to see two more today uh, of, of what ordinary evangelism looks like. Just everyday, normal life as a, as a believer. Joey, he introduced us to this woman named Lydia. Lydia was this, this wealthy businesswoman who was well-known throughout the community. She was re- well-respected. She was uh, financially stable. Um, she, she had a huge influence, but she wasn't a follower of Jesus when they met her. She was a religious person. She, had, she, she, she knew some, some religious practices to follow and things like that, but she had yet to put her faith in Jesus. So she had all the credentials, but she didn't have Jesus, and Paul would engage her, and he, he would essentially and go to this prayer gathering where she was, uh, she was attending, and she probably was a leader of this, of this gathering, uh, an influencer, and while he was speaking to her, God would start opening her heart to the, to the good news of Jesus, as, as Paul would reason with her over the Scriptures. And as the passage would continue, we're going to see two more of these uh, conversations with with other interesting with two other interesting people in the passage today. And so if you're at Acts chapter 16, I'm going to pick up in verse 16, um, and we're going to just kind of, we'll read a verse or two, and then we'll stop and we'll kind of just talk about it. But in verse 16, it says... As we were going to the place of prayer, right so that's where they met Lydia, Lydia invited them to their house, to her house. They spent some time there, and, and uh, apparently this was something that they were in the, uh, becoming accustomed to doing, was going to the place of prayer each day. And so as they were going to the place of prayer again, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this girl is the opposite of Lydia. And I think that Luke's, you know, he's being very intentional. Here's Lydia. You see her, her, her credentials. You see her characteristics. And then we meet this slave girl who's like totally polar opposite to, to Lydia. M- many scholars would say that she's probably mid-teens, teenager, maybe uh, in, in that age range. She has this demon. She's demon-possessed. Uh, and she's a slave, which means she is a spiritual and economic captive, right? She, she's possessed and she's a slave and she's busted up man she's she's being taken advantage of she's broken spiritually she's broken physically and she's not on her way to the prayer meeting right she's not on her way there she she intersects with the people who are headed to the prayer meeting and i believe first of all it's probably because she couldn't go right she's a slave She don't get to choose anything. She don't have a choice in in doing anything. Not only is she a slave, she's a slave in a predominantly Gentile community. And so it's not likely that she's going to the Jewish prayer meeting every day. But she's demon-possessed, so it's likely that she has no interest in going whatsoever. Demons don't hang out at prayer meetings unless they're trying to break them up. And so in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So she's, so she's attracted to the faith so much that she can see that part, right? She can see the message that, she's, that, that they're proclaiming, and she screams that out. But at the same time, she's kind of being antagonistic towards the message and towards those who carry it. And in verse 18, uh, and this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I love that luke puts that there i love that luke puts that that makes me believe the bible is true the fact that paul did not with great compassion and mercy and kindness look over at this woman but just annoyed and put out by her and just wish she would get out of his face so so he is greatly annoyed he turned and said to the spirit i command you in the name of jesus christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour how does this girl get delivered how does she get saved Paul performs this act of deliverance on her. He, he throws out the demon, w- which also removes her as this, this circus act that she's been uh, making money for her owners, right? She, 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 that, now that's gone also. And I, and I think it's just beautiful, man. It messes up everybody's theology and doctrine right here that the church at Philippi was planted with two women. Here we have Lydia, and here we have this slave girl. Just craziness that this is how the church starts in Philippi. It wasn't, this, uh, it wasn't this great church planner. It wasn't this great uh, well-known speaker or pastor or anything like that. It was two women. One was greatly looked down upon. People just discounted her altogether. And then the other is a slave girl. And so in verse 19, the her owners, the slave girl's owners, saw that their hope of gain was gone. That's important to see that. That They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. So the reason that they grabbed Paul and Silas was different than the reason that they gave to the magistrates. They were greatly annoyed because their gain was now lost. The, the, their income was gone. And they throw them before the magistrates and say, they're trying to mess up our customs. They're trying to teach us other things that we don't, we're not held accustomed to believing. And so the accusations being made, they weren't real. And the owners, are just, they're just upset. And even today, listen to me, even today, maybe even some of you in the room today, you, you are perfectly okay with someone preaching the gospel. You're perfectly okay with someone telling others about Jesus as long as it did not touch that which matters most to you, namely money, namely money. And that's, that's just the reality, that most of the time when someone rejects the good news of Jesus, it's because you don't want to give up something that matters to you. You feel like it's going to cost you, and guess what? It will. It does. Jesus made no bones about it. He was very upfront with, with the gospel. That you want to follow me, you give up everything. You come and follow me, and you can be with me for eternity. You can carry this message to the world, to a dying and desperate world who who needs to hear this message, who needs to believe this message. So verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now we meet a third person here, this Philippian jailer. And jailers were... Uh, in, in this time they were they were often uh, uh, Roman soldiers who 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 did really, really well as a soldier in a squadron who performed well and they 're kind of aging in retirement and so what the, the the Roman government would do would be to put them over a jail right to get you off the front lines of of, 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 of guarding and, and war and things like that. And to could give you a little bit more of a cush job. And that's, that's, that's how this, this jailer has his position, uh, and, and, and where he's at. And this guy, he does two things. The scripture says to Silas and Paul, he's going to, he's going to do two things. He's going to put them into the inner prison, right? And basically what that means is they were, there were, when you entered into the prison, they were, uh, for, for those who were um, somewhat trustworthy, like the trustees, so to speak, of the prison, um, they could just kind of be in the, in the upper level of the prison where they can kind of come and go a little bit. But for those who were a great risk to the community and a great risk to themselves, they would be put in the inner prison, which was down below in the very bottom of the prison. And this is a bad place because the indoor plumbing didn't work very well in prisons back in the first century. And... All the things that humans have to do would be done in that upper part, right? And gravity would pull things down to the lower parts. And this is where Paul and this is where Silas would would be put. This is where the the lowest of low, the most extreme criminals would be put. And here's where Paul and Silas get put. And so he does that. He puts them in the inner prison. And then it says he puts their feet in stocks. And and really what this is, Roman stocks, they're, they're chains, and they're suspended from the ceiling. And they would lay you on your back and they would they would couple up your your ankles and they would pull you up to where just about your shoulders were touching the ground. And then when they say they would beat them with rods, they would take rods and they would beat the bottoms of their feet with rods as a way of of punishment and a way of of torture. In verse twenty five, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Isn't that amazing? That they're in the worst part of the prison. The darkest, nastiest place in the prison. They've been beaten. They've been tortured for nothing. They're innocent. The accusations are false. So many reasons to be mad at God right now. So many reasons. And here they are found praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners, the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. You've got to ask the question. Why is Paul still there? What's he still doing there? He's innocent, right? They, made, they, they, they charged up some false accusations to get him in prison. And now the, the, the door is wide open for him just to walk out. The guard's asleep. Why is he staying there? He knows he shouldn't be in prison. And now the walls are down and the gates are open. His chains, they've fallen off. And we just saw just in Acts chapter 12, the same exact thing happened to, to Peter. And he left. Like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm, people are praying for me to get out of here. And I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. But Paul would recognize that this is an opportunity that God is giving me. Here's the opportunity that I've been praying for that God would use to, to reach someone in Philippi. This is the moment that God has provided. And and if part of God's plan is to reach Philippi, if if that's that's what his overall plan is, was to put these guys in prison and and, and subject them to suffering and hardship before a Philippian jailer, before prisoners that are are around them, then that was the price they were willing to pay. And that's why Paul said, we're not going anywhere. We're here because God has us here for a purpose. And so he stands, Paul stands here with freedom in one hand, right? He could walk out at any time. He could do just like Peter did. Or he could stay with a cruel man who just tortured him the night before. And Paul turns back to him and says, I'm here. I'm staying here so you can see why maybe now maybe now this jailer might listen to what Paul has to say in all of his hardship and all of his suffering he has a message that god's given an opportunity and the jailer now says i'm listening i'm i'm all ears verse 29 the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before paul and silas then he brought them out and said sirs What must I do to be saved? The very most important question that anyone in this room will ever ask yourself, ever. What must you do to be saved? And that's the question he asked. And the answer is, it cannot be more clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Did you come here with that question today? Did you come here with the question, what must I do to be saved it's answered for you believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved paul didn't suggest counseling he he didn't he didn't give a lecture on theology he didn't say wow man i, I want to talk to you about the significance of your religious background and i want to talk to you about how maybe jesus might change a few things with that he didn't say Any of those things. He didn't talk about baptism. He didn't even talk about church. Those things could be dealt with in time. That's going to come through discipleship. But but now is not the time. The man was asking about salvation. What must I do to be saved? And they replied directly, you can't do anything. It's already been done. And all you have to do is believe that it's been done for you. And you will be saved. That's it. And that's the message for you today. What must you do to be saved? You can't do anything. There is nothing worthy that's going to trump what Jesus has done for you. And so simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In verse 32, "...they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family." And then he brought them up into the house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This whole chapter, all of chapter 16, contains stories of three people who get saved. Surely there's lots of other people in Philippi who get saved through the ministry, and through the work of Paul and Silas. Surely that, that, that happens. I mean, we even see when we read the letter to the Philippians, the, the, the letter that Paul would, would eventually write back to this group of people. It, it, there were more people involved. There was an entire church gathering who was, who was involved here. So why include the stories of these three? Why not include more stories? Why not include all of the stories? Which is always a good question. I'm going to give you a Bible study tip. If you're ever reading Scripture, it's always good to ask the question when you read the Bible why include this? Like, why include the fact, these three stories? Or if there's something odd, stop and ask the question, why? That's just good Bible study help. And I think here, what we'll learn, what the reason Luke is doing what he's doing is because he wants to show us a few things, namely, something about the gospel. Like primarily something about the good news, that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. There's three completely different people, different kinds of people with different backgrounds and different circumstances. There's this rich religious woman, Lydia, right? And, And she has her thing, and there's this slave girl, and she's got her stuff all going on with her and then there's this Philippian jailer who just a, a cynic and a skeptic right who's not even interested at all in the things of God and, and and the point that I think Luke's trying to make is that there's no type of person for becoming a Christian like you don't have to be a certain type we went through this when we looked at the, the council of Jerusalem what, what was going on was the Judaizers were just trying to trying to tell the church that, that, that the gospel is for Jews and sure, Gentiles, you can be a part of this. All of you pagans, you can be a part of this. But you have to become a functional Jew in order to kind of be a real Christian. And that's whenever the church got together and said, no, man, that is, that's off. That's jacked up. By grace, through faith, and Christ. Nothing else. That's what it takes to be saved. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so there's no type, there's no kind of person for becoming a Christian and that's good news because I would bet that some of you in this room feel like you're not the type. That you're not the type to be a Christian. That I see what the church looks like and I see like the words that you guys use and I see like the songs that you sing and the just, the, just the, kind of the culture all together in here. And it's just not me, man. I'm not that type. So this is good news for you that there's no type. It might look like this for us, but it might look like what it does for you in Christ. That he's not... He's not requiring you to do anything to be saved other than believe that He's already done everything for you to be saved. That's the only requirement. There's only one Creator, one Father, and one God, and we all have one problem, every single one of us, and it's sin. And we all have this one hope, and it's Jesus. That's the only type who's worthy of the gospel who's worthy of Jesus. And because of this, the church is a place where people of vastly different types, of all sorts of backgrounds and and cultures and and contexts, where all these types of different people find unity, that you won't find anywhere else in any other type of gathering, anywhere. But that the church is a place where just different people can come under one one purpose and, and, and one name, and that's Jesus, and that's where we're all unified. And so it, it really doesn't matter. Like we all have these characteristics about ourselves that make us feel, feel proud. Like uh, uh, the, the ancient Ju- Judaizers, they would, they would get up in the morning, and, and every morning during their prayer time, they would pray this prayer, they would say, they would say "Lord, I thank God, I am not a woman, a slave." Or a Gentile. That's how they would start their prayers. Now, I know that's not politically correct today to say, God, thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not that person or this person. Trying to elevate themselves to someone else, to something else, to be a a higher characteristic. Jewish men would, they, they felt lifted up above all of these kinds of people. That was the way they prayed. And I think it's just beautiful. Look who's being saved in this story. Look who's being saved. Women are being saved. Slaves are being saved. Gentiles are being saved. And Hebrew rabbis can be saved too. And we can all come and sit down together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of your background or what type of person you think you are. However worthy or unworthy you feel. The table is set. Jesus has set the table for us. And we're invited to come and sit down together in unity and in harmony and that there's no other place on earth where you're going to find this kind of diversity functioning in such a unified effort as you will in the church. All of mankind, rich or poor, black or white, young or old, conservative or liberal, religious, irreligious, if you're from a good family or if you're from a messed up, broken family, we all have one problem and it's sin and we all have one hope and it's Jesus. And I don't know who you are or what you've done. or I don't know everybody's background or kind of where you're coming in at today. How far you've fallen, how far away from God you think you are. Let me say this one thing. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's, it's as matter of fact as that. And, it's, and it can't get more clear than that. The same Lord over all is rich in mercy to all who call upon Him. Him for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so these particular stories, they show us something about the gospel, that it's not for just a certain type of person. It's not just for men or slaves or women or rich people. It's not for all these kinds of... It's, it's for everyone, that the gospel is for everyone. And I think that Luke also gives us this, these three stories in this chapter so that we can get a glimpse of the different people maybe in our city. Maybe, maybe get a glimpse of the people in our context and, and maybe how do we reach different people, different types of people. Right, And so I'm talking to the church right now. I don't know if you consider yourself a part of the church today, but for those of you who do, I'm talking to you today, especially for those of you who belong to Sulfur Community Church because you know this is the, the trumpet that we blast week in and week out about how do we reach our neighborhood, what are some effective ways to do that, what does Scripture tell us about that. And we see three kinds of people in the story, and I believe these three kinds of people exist in our community, and they're going to require us to be reaching them in different kinds of ways. I, I, that's what I believe. I believe Lydia, this, this, this picture that we get, she's this, this spiritually interested person, right? She doesn't know Jesus, but she would affiliate herself as a religious person. Well, I, you know, I, I, I believe in God. Uh, there's a lot of people who might fit this profile, say, I have a Christian background. Well, my family, you know, if I grew up Catholic or my family went to church, my, my great-great-great-grandfather was a, was a preacher. Like, they try to identify themselves religiously. And so they're spiritually interested, and then sometimes not Sometimes they're, they would say that they're active in church and sometimes they're not. I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with, with neighbors that we get to meet from time to time and, and, and I'll just ask them about what's going on. Like, t- Tell me about a little bit about yourself and, and, and you know, do you go to church anywhere or anything like that? And it's just kind of like, well, I should be, like, like, almost to say I'm spiritually interested, but I'm just not quite motivated to do it, you know? And I was like, well, okay, well, I appreciate your honesty, you know? So we have a Lydia in the room, someone who's spiritually interested, but for whatever reason, they're, they're not motivated. They're open to having spiritual conversations. This is one kind of person. In every one of your communities, there's, there's this kind of person, someone who's interested in God, someone who might have questions, who might not be all in, but would listen, would entertain a conversation. And so what's the best way to reach them? What's the example we have? Scriptures. Expose them to the Scriptures. How do you do that? Like, how do I, okay, Blake, I hear you saying, like, teach them the Bible. I'm not a Bible teacher. I get it, okay? I understand. Now, my preferred preference, and you've heard me say this before, is not, like, your form of evangelism as a believer is not to invite someone to church. Now, I'm going to recommend that this is one way you engage someone who's spiritually interested. We want to partner with you in reaching people in your community. That's no doubt. And so one way to expose them to the Word is to invite them here. But that is not your primary calling as a disciple. That's the result of you being a good disciple, is that people would want to come be a part of what God's doing. But invite them to read the Bible with you. If you don't feel comfortable reading the Bible with them, then invite them here. But... I want to challenge you to get comfortable reading the Bible with them. Pick 25 of your favorite verses in Scripture and say, we're going to talk about one of these a week. It's that simple. And as you do this, what you're looking for is God to open their hearts. I love the phrase in that text that we saw with Lydia, the Lord opened her heart, because doesn't that just take the pressure off of all of us? For those of us who are freaked out about maybe being good witnesses of Jesus, like, I don't have to, like, like, I just have to say things. I don't have to actually, a person doesn't have to come to know Jesus in, in an encounter that I have with them. It takes the pressure off of us that the Lord is going to open someone's heart. And all we do is be faithful. He's the one doing the convincing. All I'm doing is saying the words. It's up to him to do the work, and he will do it. And a lot of people think that the only ones who can be, effect, be an effective evangelist, effective witness, are, are pastors and missionaries and, and theologically trained people. And someone effective in evangelism, let me just tell you this, you want, you want to know what qualifies you for an evangelist, someone who, a witness of Jesus Christ, you want to know what qualifies you for that? You have to believe two things. Two things you have to believe and be sure of. That salvation belongs to God. Salvation, it's His job. You can't save anybody. You can't even save yourself. Salvation belongs to God, and faith comes by hearing. So you want to know how people get saved? Romans 10 would say, All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how will they call upon the one who they do not believe? And how will they believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will someone preach without someone being sent? So salvation belongs to God and God will do the saving. And He chooses to do it through the message that we tell. That's His way of bringing salvation to people. And you have to believe those two things. And if you believe those two things, then you can be a witness for Jesus Christ. You can go and effectively witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you believe that it's up to God and I'm just going to pray that he used my words. Believing salvation belongs to God takes the pressure off of us. And that believing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it allows us, it gives us the privilege to tell people. And every believer can and should be doing this. We can and we should be doing this. That's how we reach that spiritually interested person. We just talk to them about the scriptures. We talk to them about Jesus. But here's the problem. There's a problem with this. Universally, this is where the church would stop. Say, well, we're going after the interest, the people who are interested, the people who want to hear. Like, if they don't want to hear, what are we supposed to do? But there's two more types in the story here, and there's two more types in your community for Sure. And they won't be reached by you inviting them to church. They're not going to be reached that way. The slave girl will never show up to the place of prayer in her condition. She's never going there. The Roman soldier, as cynical and skeptical as he is, has no interest in religion whatsoever. And so inviting him to church is not going to work. Inviting the slave girl to church is not going to work. So how do you engage these types of people with the gospel then? How do we do this? How are the physical and the spiritual captives reached? Those who are imprisoned spiritually and those who are imprisoned physically. It has to do with getting involved in their lives. It has to do with, with knowing who they are and, and and befriending and being involved in what's going on in their life. I I, I didn't have I, I had the picture, but I didn't get I didn't get to put it up in time. But I want to tell you a story, um, and, and I know that we're going to run a little, little over, but it's, an, it's a very important story. Um, back in 2010, a little before that, but officially 2010, I'll give you a little bit of history about SC3 and Hope House. That was kind of our first ministry effort um, very, very early on, probably within the first few times of us really ever trying to do any kind of community outreach, we met this couple uh, who you guys, some of you will know Johnny Ellender um, and, and Miss Edith Bruce. Or Miss Edith, she's come several times um, and, and been, been with us. Um, Mr. Johnny has since gone on to be with Jesus. Um, when we met them, uh, he was on the heels of recovering from alcoholism. Um, and it was, a, it was a very interesting thing as we began to just kind of build a relationship, to be friends, just to kind of hang out and, and get to know things about their lives, and then just kind of share in our lives. We would do things like, you know, just have a, have a dinner one night, a family dinner one night at the Hope House, and we'd invite people over, and they, they were just faithful to always be part of what was going on, and we got to know them really well through that process. Um, and... and in all of that, they come to put their faith in Jesus. And it wasn't anything that we did. We were just trying to be faithful witnesses, right? And just sharing the love of Jesus and telling people about Jesus. And through that process, they, they come to know Jesus. And they become actively involved in our church. And they become actively involved in our ministries. And then Mr. Johnny, um, one of the things that we would always point out, it, it, doesn't ma- he didn't, it didn't matter who he was talking to. Anytime he had a conversation, he was preaching the gospel to you. Like and, and he didn't even know, like, like, I don't think he really, like, was, like, trying to convert anyone. He was just really just trying to tell people about the goodness of God and how, how much grace God had shown in his life. And so it was, con- like, it doesn't matter if you were a, a believer or not. You were getting the gospel when you got to talk with Mr. Johnny for a little while. And then he, he had gotten sick, and then he had went on to... Uh, be with Jesus after some time. And, and I can tell you, one of the sweetest moments uh, in, in, the, in the life of that ministry was at that man's funeral, just to hear people stand up and give testimonies of what that guy meant to the church. We are not reaching people like Mr. Johnny Ellender by having better music. We are not reaching people like Mr. Johnny Because we've got some kind of slick speaker. Someone who could be funny and tell good stories. It's not how we're reaching them. We'll get there by being in the communities. We'll we'll get there by spending our lives among the addicted and the homeless and the prisoners and the pregnancy clinics and those places where people are broken and people need hope. That's where we're going to make a difference. So inviting them to church for that person may or may not be the right thing to do, but being involved in their lives is always the right thing to do. And how will we reach the, the skeptics and the cynics like the Philippian jailer? This guy got saved because two things, two things happened that, that made him turn his eyes to Jesus. He saw the extreme joy coming from Paul and Silas. In, in their affliction and in their hardship, in the midst of their pain, he saw joy coming from them. And... and he was the recipient of their grace. Like he, They showed so much grace to him that he couldn't understand. That was the thing that he went back and said, I need to know, man. I need to know where the source of that joy is, and I need to know how do you extend that kind of grace to someone like me. That's where, that's where he gets saved. Paul would recognize that God had appointed him. Right, He had appointed him for this kind of suffering. Like whenever he was saved, God would, the Spirit of God would tell um, uh, tell Ananias in Damascus, said, "Go and meet this man because I have prepared him." To be a great witness. He's going to suffer many things in my name. But the gospel is going to go forward. And Paul knew that. And here he is recognizing that this suffering was appointed to him. It was given to him to reach this jailer. To reach this kind of person. This character of person. Which is why he didn't run out. Why he didn't pull a Peter and just kind of walk out of the jail. And say I'm free now. I'm not not staying here. But he stayed because he knew that he was appointed for this. He chose to keep praising God in the midst of his suffering and his hardship. And he chose to show extraordinary grace to someone who absolutely didn't deserve it, someone who just tortured him the night before. Those were the things that he chose to do because he recognized that God had appointed him for this moment so that this jailer would experience the grace of Jesus. So how do we reach skeptics and how do we reach cynics? How do we reach the doubters? It very well may come from us being extremely uncomfortable to the point of suffering and hardship. And we have to be ready for it. We have to be ready to say, yes, God, you've appointed me for this. What if in the midst of our pain, what if in the midst of our suffering, our first thought wasn't, God, what have I done wrong? Because that's, t- that's typically where we want to go. If things aren't going right, if I don't feel like things are I'm broken or things around me are broken or family life is hard, it's like, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you doing this to me? Like, what if our attitudes weren't that, but it was like, God, whose life are you trying to reach in the midst of all this? Would you please show me? Would you please show me how you're going to use this? Some of you, when you suffer, you're like, God, what have I done wrong? What did, what did I do? And you're looking through Scripture and you're looking for some promises of God. You're looking for the parts of Scripture that would say uh, that He's going to give you all the riches in Christ Jesus and that you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You could pull up all those little cute phrases and you'll overlook John chapter 16, verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How many people remember just two chapters ago where Paul would say through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? See, we tend to want to blow past those. We don't want anything to do with those verses. The reality for the believer is that our pain is part of how Jesus is overcoming the world. Our pain and our suffering and our hardship is, is how we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's what Scripture is. It's just through in and throughout. He's using it to help someone else see the hope and the joy that you and I have in Jesus. And so what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your pain? What are you going to do with your suffering and the the dark place that you feel like you're in right now? You ask God to use it. God, glorify yourself through whatever this is. Holy Spirit, empower me to be faithful in this moment. Empower me not to turn my face away from this right now, but to head, head it straight on for God's glory, even if it costs me my life. And there's two things to know about suffering for the believer there's 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 some things you got to know like you need to expect it it's coming scripture's clear expect it and, and and then be ready to to endure it to 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 press on through it those two things are very important you expect it you see your suffering coming you don't be surprised by it Peter would say why are you acting like suffering is such a strange thing to you like scripture is all throughout. Jesus was very clear that this is what's going to be like this. But he's worth it. And God told Paul, I'm appointing you to make much of my name among the Gentiles. And part of that involves your suffering. Part of that involves the, the hardships that you're going to face. And Paul would later write to the church at Philippi. You can go home today and read that that entire letter in just a few short minutes, the the, the letter to the Philippians. And it was very likely that some of the men in that prison who were around that night, who heard those prayers, who heard that singing, very likely that they were in that church gathering whenever they received this letter where Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Rejoice. And those men can sit down and say, we heard it. We saw it happen. In the most dire circumstances, we saw those men rejoice in the Lord. And the psalmist wrote, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, for he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And we don't just endure it, but we endure it with a hope. We have Jesus. And so we we expect our suffering and and we know that it's coming, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to endure it, but but also with hope. You talk about the goodness of God in the midst of your struggling. You 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 declare it, you you sing it just like we saw in the in the text here. You put a smile on your face when you do it. Because the prisoners and the captives, they're listening. They're listening to us. What are we saying? What are we singing? What are we praying? God, get me out of this. God, why are you doing this to me? Or God, thank you for your promise. Thank you that you promised this, but you promised that you would see me through. We declare it and we sing it. And we shout it and we do it with a smile because the prisoners, those who are spiritually and physically captive, are listening to us, church. What are they hearing? Some of you, you're, you're, you're in this prison, you have a bad marriage or you're, you're, your home life, it just, it just stinks and your, your job situation is just tough and it seems like it's impossible. You have a chronic health issue that you're trying to deal with or you're a victim of some kind of injustice and, and I'm not telling you to just sit back passively and just like smile about it, right? In the next few verses, the rest of this chapter, in fact, Paul would actually protest his treatment. He would come out and say, hey, no, 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 you guys want to set us free? You come in and set us free because we're Roman citizens. You see, and so uh, we don't deserve this kind of treatment. So he fought for the injustice that was shown to them and the treatment that, they, that was shown. But what I am saying is that you plead for justice, you plead for righteousness, and you do it without ever losing your joy or your possession in Christ. Never do that. Others are watching us, church. What are they hearing? What are they, what are they hearing us say, and what are they hearing us sing? They're watching, and they could be recipients of extravagant grace through us. If we would be willing to get involved in their lives, not just invite them to church, but get involved in their lives, even to the point that it's inconvenient, and it hurts, and it's dirty, and I don't like it, and it's, it's just a mess. Nothing puts the gospel on display like grace in the midst of injustice and hardships and our suffering. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for reminding us in your gospel that there is not one person worthy of your grace and your mercy not us and not anyone around us, not in our community and not in this world. We've all shaken our fist at you. We've all turned to our own ways, our own conveniences and our own comforts. Lord, but you show grace. Grace to a point, Father, where we really can't explain it. And we certainly do not deserve it. I thank you, God, that this word reminds us, every one of us in the room, that it is only by that grace that we are saved. Lord, so for all of us who've come in the room this morning um, trying to do things to maintain our salvation, Father, I pray today that we would be convicted of elevating our works above Jesus and what He's done. I pray for those in the room who've come this morning who are far from you right now, who are desperately working with everything they have to try to earn a smile from you. I pray, Father, that they would be comforted and confirmed in the gospel this morning. That it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we are saved and we thank you so much for that gift of grace we thank you so much for the gift of mercy Father forgive us when we use the favor that you've shown us for selfish gain for self comfort rather than Allowing it to flow through us like a river from one point to the next, so that those across the street from us, and those in the world, and those who sit across the desk from us, would know you, Father. Forgive us whenever we, whenever we don't allow your grace to flow as you would. Father, call us to. Father, I pray that this morning as we get just a, a clear glimpse of the gospel here in this passage this morning, that, that, God, you would call some in this room to be saved this morning. Father, I don't care if they've called themselves a Christian for 30 years. Lord, if it's been the name of Christian because of their own work in their own effort, I'd pray, Father, that today that they would be undone by your grace. and you would give them a new heart. And that they would celebrate you and praise you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice. For it was the only way. And you willingly subjected yourself for our good and for the glory of your Father. And so that's why we pray all these things and we sing these songs and we, we do everything that we do. And so, Father, in this place, would you receive your glory? We thank you for being so good to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.